You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural podcast for FDNY Pro EMS. I'm going to be your host for today's interview, one-on-one with Dr. Dario Gonzalez. I'm Captain Elizabeth Cassio, Executive Officer to the Fire Commissioner. And Dr. Gonzalez is Medical Director for EMS Division 2. Hello, Liz. How are you doing? I'm great. It's good to see you. Good to see you. It's our understanding that you traveled to Liberia. What compelled you to make this trip knowing that you would be in potential danger? The decision was made on a contact call from AmeriCares. They said, would you be interested in going? Your name was given to us. And I said, sure. I said, don't you want to think about it? I said, no, let's go. It was, you know, the biggest healthcare disaster that was looming, really, for the world. And every time I go to a disaster, I always think that's the ultimate. You went to Oklahoma City, but you can't get any worse than this and all these dead kids. Then you go to 9-11 and you say, oh my God, this is, this is it. Then you go to Haiti and say, forget about everything, this is it. And then you start to look at the spectrum of what's going on in a worldwide event. You sort of say, you know what, let's, let's go. And um, what did I think about my chances of surviving? It's 100%. So you aren't worried about your own health or well-being? No, not until you get there, then you worry. Uh, I, my concerns about my health care is that um, I'm probably going to do all right. How many patients did you treat while you were in Liberia, and what was the experience like? The numbers are really um, interesting because you lose count after a while. We did lots of training, so there was a lot of training. I went to Aniston to do training with CDC. Then I went to Liberia to training with DOD, WHO, so the Department of Defense, World Health Organization, uh, and then I went to a place called Bang to actually do what's called hot training, where you work with patients with Ebola. And that's where they found where the real problem becomes with staff that show up there. Uh, and so at that point, what you do is you wear these Tyvek suits, the white suits. You wear masks, uh, cover your eyes, and then you wear N95 masks on your mouth. So we don't wear APRs. And remember, this is in temperature that's about 95 degrees and about 92, 93% humidity. It rains pretty much at night, and so it's very, very hot. And so you start off being able to wear this thing uh, probably about 15, 20 minutes. I can do, go up to about two hours now, two and a half hours. So you're protected and you go in. And the idea is you go in and First time, you don't do anything, you don't touch anything, you just gotta go into a clean area, then a contaminated area, and sort of uh, watch the nurses and the doctors take care of the patients. And then you go make a second visit, and you come back, and then you actually assist on providing care. And that really is putting in IV lines, uh, uh, giving fluids, doing assessments, seeing if somebody's still alive, uh, seeing what's happening with the patient, talking to the patients, uh, and then you get your own patients and you sort of try and manage their fluids, antibiotics, assess them how they're getting, are they getting sick, are they getting not. 
Uh, and uh, some people became encephalopathic, they were confused, disoriented, and that was really the ones that were gonna die. I guess the worst part was dealing with the kids. It was very interesting because the parents who were Ebola negative would go in with their kids. But the problem came sometimes that the kids that were Ebola negative had to go with the parents because their family was basically thrown out of villages and they, there was nobody to care for them. There was no services available. So they would go in there and we sort of hoped that they didn't become Ebola positive. You would see families that came in that lost 15 people in their family and these were the only two that were left. Uh, I remember one group where we had a uh, three-year-old come in with her older sister, who was like six or seven, and her mother. Her father already died, grandmother already died, the other relatives already died, the other brother had already died, and they were alone. So they came there, and then the sister died, then the mother died, and then the three-year-old survived. And she survived 27 days. She finally became negative, which is quite a long time. The question becomes is, what do you do with her? Where does she go? No one wants her, she's an Ebola patient. We talk about people surviving, becoming immune. I still don't know what immune means. If that Ebola virus sort of uh, mutates, we got a problem, they may not be immune. I can tell you this, that the first time you touch an Ebola patient, it's really, it's quite frightening. And if anybody tells you that, oh, I can do that, it's no big deal, the answer is you don't know what you're talking about because you're talking about this could be potentially fatal if the way they told us how to do it is wrong. So uh, we, you know, you really do get scared and you sort of say, well, all right. Uh, and you go from there. And I did have one breach in my PPE, which was not, <laughs> which was not very uh, encouraging. Uh, it was very frightening, and uh, so you had to really scrub and clean, and I had an exposure on my hand, and you just imagine the virus just going through you, and uh, so you just watch and see you don't get sick for the next couple of days. It's uh, really assessing, evaluating, working with nurses, working with PAs, working with the Africans that would actually go in there, and all the Africans we had there, every one of them had lost somebody to Ebola. It was really amazing because they were willing to go in there to take care of those patients that they considered their brothers and sisters. Interesting communication of patient information was all by memory because anything that went into the unit was destroyed. So nothing ever came out of the Ebola unit. So if you brought a camera in, it was destroyed. Uh, if you brought a piece of paper, it was destroyed. So you couldn't bring anything out and that was the policy. And the idea being, since we consider everything contagious, and everything with virus, even though we, the air reeked of bleach. I mean, you might have been in a swimming pool. There was so much bleach in the air uh, that people had asthma, which sometimes trigger attacks. The one thing that was interesting is that if you got a needle stick, we didn't check for HIV or AIDS. We'd go, who cares? <laughs> you want to know if you had Ebola? <laughs> so if you survived the Ebola, we'll worry about the, uh, if you're going to get AIDS. And that was a big, big issue with putting in needles because some units had decided early on not to use intravenous lines to use oral hydration. We didn't think it would work. Um, so we went to intravenous lines. But again, very, very dangerous procedure. No CPR, no resuscitation. The big issue too is do you deliver uh, children of women that are positive that are miscarrying? 
And the procedure we took was no. We said, no, we ain't gonna do that. Uh, because there was almost 100% fetal mortality and 90% maternal mortality. Uh, and people had been infected by the bleeding and then we had mortality in healthcare workers that you couldn't replace. Uh, and really, we couldn't do much. Though the doctors on our board were trying to see if they could set up some sort of unit to try and deal with that issue. And the other part of the problem was that if women were pregnant, that some of the hospital and they were, had been screened and evaluated as negative at the Ebola unit because they were pregnant, they were vomiting, they had belly pain, they didn't feel well, and said, oh, sounds like Ebola. Uh, and we, even if we cleared them, sometimes the hospitals wouldn't take them back in fear that maybe they still had Ebola. What were the conditions like in the area where you were? Everything is bigger. Uh, a few rats, a few bugs, a few spiders, a few things. Um, and that the, once you go to the Ebola units, then you, you're living in a tent for a while and you stay at these hotels. Um, but that, um, the, the biggest problem is that they build these the Ebola units near uh, real estate that isn't very useful. Uh, so we built, there was one Ebola unit I worked at was, whose neighbor was a leper colony. So no one wanted to live there. So I said, oh, perfect land. And our Ebola unit they built next to a garbage dump, which was, no one wanted to be there. Uh, and so one, the leper colony we had, uh, Nairobi flies, which were really very, very bad. They weren't really flies, they were beetles. That once they got on you, they released toxins, they burned your skin, and it was very irritating. You got secondary infections, so it was a real pain. It was very, very difficult, and you got scarring. So that was one unit, and the other unit, just a lot of rents. Um, that sort of came out, but that's, you know, they only came out at night. How long were you there? I was gone for three months. And then you tack in um, three weeks of quarantine. I self-quarantined in Brussels uh, because mainly we had tried to actually come back to the U.S. Uh, we couldn't get back. And I just went to an SRO, a single room occupancy, and stayed there, and stayed there for 21 days, 22 days. 22 days to make sure that I was okay. So I stayed there and it was, it was nice. And then I came back and then I couldn't get back into the U.S. How did your family deal with this quarantine period? They were not very happy. Uh, they, my family felt that, what are you, crazy? What are you doing? What, what's going on? And then the concern was, oh, you're gonna get sick, you're gonna die, what's gonna happen? I guess people don't really understand. And the hype around it was, you get it, it's lethal, it's fatal, and you can pass it on to people and so, you know, what was doing it, and you're going someplace far, far away to take a big risk on something that's potentially going bad. And remember, at that point, we had a 50, 60, sometimes 70% mortality rate. So getting it was not a uh, very good thing. How did this experience change you? I tend to appreciate family a little bit better and friends a little bit better. I think I'm much more appreciative of what goes on. I'm much more sensitive to what goes on in the world. One of the big things is, you know, we worry about trivial stuff that is, doesn't mean a whole lot. We, we sit here and worry about things and we say, oh, this is important. You go, no, it's not, it doesn't matter. Uh, we sometimes lose sight of the big picture. 
And even though we look at New York City, that there's a greater microcosm out there that we should be looking at. Is there anything you learned from this experience from either the international community or the African community that you would want to implement here? There are a lot of people willing to do something, and I think that's good. A lot of people doing very good things and trying really panned out, really helped to stem this thing. I truly think that that's what cut it short and made it a lot better, a lot quicker. I think that translating that to here is that we need to work more as a group, as a unity, to actually deal with things instead of isolating things, that we have to be more open with it. That I think that if there was an outbreak in New York City, that we would need to really bring in assistance, no matter how big we are. Are other areas willing to assist to come into areas where you have plague, where you have smallpox, where you have Ebola, where you have MERS, where you have all sorts of other things that are coming down the road. Uh, and that's where we need to look at. And I think part of that has to do with education and communication. Given what you know about Ebola, how well do you feel the country prepared for the potential outbreak in the United States? We have on total beds for Ebola patients is around 15 in New York City. Uh, in the unit I worked in, in Bond County, we had 35 confirmed. So the question becomes, what do we do? And this is why we need better access and resources and working with other people, other places. That I think that we have set the bar so high with these isolation units that if you look at an isolation unit in New York City and then you look at a tent structure in Africa where we didn't really kill the workers and we didn't really pass the disease around, that we need to be more realistic on how we're going to manage things that we can't do an ICU setting for every single patient if we had a mass outbreak. So it's good for isolated cases, but the question becomes, do we have plans to deal with a mass event? And maybe next time it won't be Ebola, maybe it'll be another disease. How well do you think the FDNY prepared? When I come back, I find that there's a group that's got rescue, hazmat, suppression, it's got officers, it's got doctors. Uh, it's even made better contact with the hospitals. And so what we're looking at, and I went on a bunch of the Ebola runs, it was very impressive that everybody worked together, took this individual, treated them humanely, nicely, brought them to the hospital, had a procedure in place, made sure people felt comfortable, that they weren't contaminated, that they had good information. There was a lot of communication between the services. Uh, and I think that everybody had a piece in that. And I thought that was really uh, very impressive. Knowing that the FDNY was the only agency in the United States to date to successfully mitigate patient management of a positive Ebola case, what do you think led to the agency's success? This wasn't just a medical operation. It was really a logistical movement, isolation, cleanup, all these different pieces. So I think what really led it to be successful was people just really sort of saying, we need to get this done. And we don't have eight months. We don't have two years to figure out how the policies are going to work. But rather saying, this is the end point. We got to get it working and we got to move forward. So I, I think that was probably the biggest thing, just getting people to sort of say, this is the real deal. We need to do something, and we need to do it now. If we get it wrong, we'll move on, and we'll correct it, and we'll modify things. 
but I, from what I heard and what I saw, we really didn't get a whole lot wrong. What advice would you share with other medical directors throughout the country who are evaluating if their own efforts for Ebola are sufficient for the potential threat? They need to understand that these diseases, whatever it is, and there are the list of potential pandemics that sit at the CDC is probably about 100 things, from pandemic flu to Ebola to Legionnaires, that they need to have generic plans in place that deal with the containment, the transport, and the coordination with medical facilities, that they can't just wrap an ambulance in plastic and then just assume they're going to have one limited patient that they need to look at what do we have to protect the workforce and then what do we do to actually move these people. And the city, wherever they are, the locality, has to figure out what are they going to do when 14 beds isn't enough? Uh, how are you going to manage that? And that's really a medical, logistical nightmare. And again, you can't hold the standards of an ICU burn unit, containment unit. That's really the best thing but doesn't work. CDC units, Nebraska units, uh, in Germany, they're only meant for like two or three people. So it's not like we can send people to Nebraska. There's what, three beds there? So we need to figure out what do we do in a mass event with pandemic influenza, avian influenza? How are we going to manage that? How are we going to coordinate that? And that means that they really have to be more aggressive in dealing with that and not assuming that the solution is to stop the flights, that it's already here. We need to figure out how to move from there. Thanks again for joining us on our inaugural podcast. Be sure to check back with us next time when we go one-on-one with another FDNY EMS professional. Follow us on social media, too, and go to fdnypro.org for more information. I'm Liz Cassio. Stay safe. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest.